Martha Thorne is an American academic, curator, editor, and author, as well as the former executive director of the Pritzker Architecture Prize. Today, she joins Susie Anetta, editor-in-chief of Design Anthology, on the line for a conversation about her life and work. This is the Design Dialogues. I believe that you studied city and urban planning. I'm really curious to hear about how you came to be interested in that field and if you have any kind of early memories or if there's one specific kind of aha moment where you kind of realised that that was the field that you wanted to kind of pursue. Yeah, it's something because I've been thinking about that because I have this deep passion for cities. I I love to visit any city, um, small ones, large ones, giant ones. And I do remember I was originally planning to study social work when I went to college. And I think it was something that a lot of people then and a lot of students now feel that they want to contribute, they want to change society. Maybe they see situations that they feel are unjust. So I started working uh, and taking courses more directed to serving individuals. And quickly I realized that that would be a very long haul, that trying to help people one by one is very, it's it's a wonderful uh, way to do it. It's very necessary. But I thought that changing processes, changing the way things are done, understanding sort of broader um, environments would be more effective. So I changed majors and became very interested in cities. And when I was at college, there was not a major in, in undergraduate and urban studies or city planning as there is today. So I did what was called a special major. And I created a program which was then approved by the university administration which brought together urban history, urban economics, environmental design, um, computer programming, um, a whole lot of courses, but all with a focus on the city. And so then from there, my passion became even greater and I went on to study a Master of City Planning at the University of Pennsylvania. And I did time in London, about nine months at London School of Economics with a different slant, but still looking at cities that was town and regional planning. So one thing led to another and here I am. Wow. That's, uh, yeah, a quicker way to save the world, I suppose. (laughs) Um, Well, I'd like to go back to early in your career um, because you were Associate Curator of the Department of Architecture at the Art Institute of Chicago. And I'm, I'm quite curious to know how your training and your interests um, in city planning, but also in architecture, how did they lead you to that position? Yeah, this is a little bit more direct, I would say, than my um, going into uh, city planning or urban affairs. 
Um, I, I, when I came to Spain after graduate school, I quickly realized that the field of city planning or working um, uh, in city governance or issues related to cities was either done by engineers who had a much more concrete view of the city, I would say a more static view, the idea of um, there are certain problems that you solve, it's sort of like two plus two is four. And the other um, agents who were very active in cities, in city planning in Spain, were architects. And they approached it more um, with an eye to design, urban design, and I think it was, for me, it was more humane and it was closer to, to my training. So I became involved with architects who were working on planning projects or working on analysis. Uh, I remember an analysis of a, of a historic town. And then I uh, was asked to collaborate with a magazine here in Madrid. And at that time, I realized that communicating architecture, communicating the phenomena of cities, is something that there was a whole area, there was a whole gap, and it seemed so necessary. So that took me into more into the field of communicating, interpreting, critiquing the world around me. And it was expressed through articles, through my work at different journals. And then it culminated in some ways to the physical space through exhibitions. So I, I worked on in, for the Ministry of Public Works here in Spain. They had a wonderful space for exhibiting all sorts of, uh, of architects, architecture, trends, phenomena, issues, and that um, opened the door to other curators around the world, and that brought me in contact with the Art Institute of Chicago. And when a position opened up, I threw my hat in the ring and was fortunate enough to be uh, um, hired for the position of associate curator. And I stayed there 10 years, and it was an, an incredible experience. Mm, I bet it was. I, I'm wondering what um, some of the more kind of or major challenges you may have faced during that time curating and exhibiting architecture, which is still a relatively new idea or relatively new phenomena. Um, you know, and what were some of the more memorable exhibitions and publications that you created during that time? I, Susie, I think you're absolutely right. Different museums, uh, different institutions understand how to share concepts and through exhibitions in different ways. The Art Institute of Chicago is an encyclopedic museum, so it has different departments that go from drawings and paintings to um, textiles and to architecture. And um, I would say one of the challenges, we, we sort of saw, saw ourselves as the uh, low folks on the totem pole. Um, <laughs> and, and that's also because in art museums, um, painting, sculpture, those the artists are expressing themselves. 
Um, and it's a, an artistic expression, a cultural expression, and it doesn't necessarily and usually doesn't have a, a functional aspect to it. It doesn't have to. On the other hand, architecture has to respond to human needs, and that means that it has to be much more uh, beyond just art. It has to also be of service to, to communities. So I think within the museum, a challenge was being seen as, as truly one of the important departments, but with a different focus. So it was artistic on one hand, but it was also very much connecting to the people uh, that would visit the exhibitions or do research or come to the museum. I would say the other challenge um, is the general public doesn't look at a list of exhibitions and gravitate directly to architecture exhibitions. We all like, for example, the great masters in painting or drawings or blockbuster shows are much more seductive. So the challenge was how do you present the work of architects or architectural ideas or ideas about the city in a way that is attractive, not condescending, and can somehow relate to the individuals who come to the exhibition. And that, that for me was, was a great learning experience. When you talk about housing, when you talk about the city in which the exhibition is held, when you talk about phenomenon that somehow um, may affect people's daily lives, new transportation modes, um, different, different things that we come in contact in, in, in a natural way, that's what you can use to attract people. So what we did in Chicago um, was try to look at design that um, was not considered necessarily high design or people didn't know that designers and architects were behind the inventions that they use and see. So transportation was something that we worked on. Um, my colleague and the director of the department, John Zukowski, did um, uh, building for air travel and design for space travel. I focused on um, uh, the design of trains and train stations. So things like that, trying to connect with people, were, um, were very fulfilling. And I would say one of the most uh, interesting exhibitions, uh, and I had a lot of fun doing it, was about the transformation of Bilbao here in Spain. And it was just when things were being built and getting going in Bilbao in the year 2000, 2001. And most people think of the Bilbao effect as one building, the Guggenheim. But the thesis of the exhibition was to try to explain that the transformation of that city was due to about a dozen different projects from moving the port out towards the sea to cleaning the river 
to the, the new metro stations and metro lines, to creating uh, an area of development, of mixed development, um, connecting both sides of the river through footbridges. So the, the, that exhibition was one to say that, yes, Bilbao has been transformed, but it goes beyond the headline that we often read. And, and I found that very fulfilling. Mm, that's so interesting. Well, I'd like to talk a little bit about your involvement with the Pritzker Prize. I think all of our listeners will be very familiar with it. Um, you became the executive director in 2005, is that correct? That's correct, in, in the summer of 2005. Okay. So I guess from the outside as an observer um, and someone who eagerly awaits the announcement of the next winner each year, uh, you know, it, it appears to me at least that the, the winners or the recipients of that prize are becoming a bit more diverse um, and that it's not just all white men or old white men that are, that are winning the Pritzker now. I wonder if you could talk us, a little, uh, talk us through a little bit about, um, you know, how, how that is evolving, or at least since your involvement with the prize. Yeah. Yeah, um, I, I will. I'm, I try to be a very candid person and, and always sincere. Um, I did step down last year uh, from, the, from the, the prize after 15 years, um, and it was an incredible experience, but it's, it's also time for transitions in my life and in the life of the prize. So now when I look at it with a little bit more distance, um, some things seem to come into focus a little bit better. Uh, one thing I would say about all prizes is that they are affected by the context in which they operate. Um, the Pritzker, the jury is independent. They represent only themselves. They don't represent a professional association or a company or, or, or um, a donor. They just represent themselves. So that, that does give them a lot of independence. But they also are within a context, uh, which is their education, their city, their profession. And the group itself, as a jury, has a very special dynamic. Um, so I think all prizes are influenced by their context. And I would say if we look at prizes, it's always very interesting to look at the makeup of the jury, try to understand who the jurors are, because they do bring, um, they do bring their opinions, their experiences to the table when they discuss them. So going back to the Pritzker specifically, it's always had the goal of service to humanity and the art of architecture, those, those two facets. But I think you're absolutely right, Susie. In the past years, the Pritzker has tried to give a more poignant message, not just the name and country of the winner, but to have a deeper message about the importance and the power of architecture and certainly the aspect of service to humanity is something that I've seen or I saw in my time that they discussed more and more, grappling with what is service to humanity. There's many different ways to um, contribute. 
architecture is not practiced in just one way with one rule. So that broadening of understanding what is service to humanity and making it more um, visible was something that the prize did. Now, when I mentioned the context, I, and I can tell you um, one thing that I, I do think pushed the prize, um, women at Harvard formed uh, a, a group um, to try to get the Pritzker Prize jury to retroactively give the prize to Denise Scott Brown saying that when Bob Venturi won the prize, it should have been given to both of them. And they started a petition online um, at, a, at an online website, change.org, and every time somebody signed the petition, um, it came to my mailbox, and I received over, I think it was about 18 or 20,000 emails. Wow. And that for me was extremely painful um, because my, my own personal view about women in the profession is um, one of uh, great criticism of the profession, of the educational uh, system, of journals, of books, of sort of everything around the profession. Um, on the other hand, I, I, my role uh, as a professional to the jury um, was to assist them, not to tell them what to do ever. And they struggled with this issue. They, 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 I think they contemplated um, not only the situation of Denise Scott Brown, but of women in general. And while they did not retroactively uh, grant her the award, um, and I think they made the right decision, um, not 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 uh, addressing that about Denise, but um, if you are an independent jury, you can't really go back in history and say the independent colleagues 10, 20 years ago were wrong because it opens a Pandora's box to second-guess every decision that everyone has made. So they said that they could not go back and overturn a previous jury's work. They, that jury worked in good faith, um, but that they were enormously conscious of um, the unjust situation in the world and they would definitely um, take measures to um, to improve their uh, the makeup of the jury, um, an understanding of the profession, and that they would sort of do their homework uh, to make sure that their decisions were the ones they felt the most correct, the most just, and the most thoughtful. Um, given the, the situation. And, and we saw after that, we saw more women on the jury. We saw um, deeper messages about the prize. We've seen a great diversity in, in the approaches to architecture 
by the, the more recent winners. So I, I think, I, I do think that they are conscious of what's going on in the world and they're conscious of their role as being a leader, not just a follower, not just, follow, not just restating what journals or the newspaper may, may say, but really forging, um, when they feel it appropriate, forging new paths so others may have, uh, have a chance. Mm. That's great to hear. You mentioned earlier the two main goals that the Pritzker Prize has, which I'll summarise as excellence in architecture and um, service to humanity. And I know that you've also talked quite a bit in the past about contemporary cities and livable cities and how architecture, design and urbanism can contribute to sustainability and resilient cities. Um, I'm curious to know how... Um, how considered those issues are in the deliberations of the Pritzker Prize? I mean, obviously, as not a juror, I don't know how privy you are to those <laughs> conversations, but I, I wonder how you know prevalent that is um, in that process. Yeah. What, without going into details, um, because I, uh, the, the jury deliberations are conversations uh, that are very intense and uh, go on for hours and hours um, and it wouldn't be correct for me to to reveal specifics um, but what I what I can say is the concept of service to humanity has many many facets and so the jury um, they they also realize that architecture isn't isolated um, it's not, you can't put it in a, in a box and just look inside the box. So many times the conversations begin by something very general about, well, what's going on in the world and how has that uh, had an impact on architecture? And it could be anything from um, an economic crisis or the crisis, for example, in 2008. Um, I, I can imagine that now um, the jury is concerned um, about the war in Ukraine. I, I don't know. I, I haven't been with the jury um, at their, their last meetings, but I can imagine. So sometimes they uh, look at the world because they realize architecture is part of that. And the other thing I remember about conversations is the richness of the discussion about what is service to humanity. And I think this reflects a shifting role uh, of, of the profession of, of architecture. And we see it in different ways in the attribution of works. Now teams are mentioned. Um, many prizes or, or many articles um, even podcasts talk about how do the clients respond to a building, what does it contribute to the community. So I, I think now the I can imagine that the jury talks about sustainability, they probably talk about um, the need for housing, a terrible shortage in the world. Uh, um, I'm sure they talk about things like materials and probably as related to something like circular economy, the renovation of buildings. Um, 
I, and I can imagine that they, they talk about a lot of those issues about how architecture can do more than just create a building and, and the functional aspect of it. I, I think, you know, if we look at past winners, we can see people, Glenn, Wer Glenn, Glenn, Glenn Merkett, for example, uh, his cite, the citation talked about sustainability, and that was quite a while ago. Shigeru Ban's uh, citation talks about temporary shelter um, for in response to natural and human-made disasters. Alejandro Aravena's citation talks about his work of having architects gain a place at the table for policymaking. Lakatoni Vassal from uh, more recent winners, um, they're talking about um, understanding what exists and not changing things unless absolutely necessary. So they're talking about the, the democratic role of architecture. Um, they're talking about the cultural role and the need for architects to be stewards of what exists and to improve that um, when necessary, but only when necessary. Well, thank you for that insight. Uh, I'd like to talk next about uh, architectural education, actually. You've been with IE University uh, for quite a while, but you have somewhat recently been um, named the Dean of the IE School of Architecture and Design. Um, and you have talked a bit in the past about how architecture and design education can evolve um, and how they can become more relevant for today's challenges. And I think given the last two years of the pandemic, I think education has probably had to pivot and adapt maybe more quickly than other industries have. Um, I, I wanted to maybe hear a little bit about what, uh, you know, some of the major challenges that you see are happening at the moment in terms of how architecture is taught. Um, and also, given that the IE school has a somewhat different approach, I wonder if you think that all architecture schools should have a different approach or is there a need for standardization? Those are, those are great, great questions. Um, maybe I, I could start by saying where I see the friction points in, in architecture mm. education. Um, one has to do with, we, we know that architecture, building, those are processes that, that are slow, they need time. And so on one hand, we're, we're in an industry where it takes time to um, design, it takes time to build, it takes time to manufacture the components uh, or to produce the materials that will go in a building. And then we hope that those buildings uh, and spaces will remain for decades. And, uh, I would say, I, I hope they remain for centuries in some cases. Um, and when next to that, when you see society which is changing and there are problems, uh, issues that affect our built environment um, that, that are not slow, but they're really quite fast. For example, technological changes. We, we all feel that from our 
cell phones to our computers to um, checking the time schedule when we take the bus or the subway. So technology is changing very quickly and it's very important in the field of architecture, but I think that's a friction point. I think climate change uh, is, is also a friction point because architecture has, and architectural education has approached buildings in a certain way for many, many years, for if not decades, or if we, are, if we go back to the Bauhaus at uh, the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th, um, we haven't really changed, although the world around us, as I mentioned, climate change is a huge pressure. So I, I think we, we have one friction point is the speed of changes in the world, in our context, and the need to address those if we think that the built environment should and can address some of those, and the slowness of, of the profession. Another friction point, I would say, is the image of the architect. And this is the image, again, as you mentioned, it's the white male. But even beyond that, I would say it's the individual as an artist, a creator, the author. And that, that is really in conflict with the way architects work, the way, the way we work nowadays, which is a much more collaborative team effort. No one person can imagine, design, spec, know everything about a building, uh, analyze the proposals alone. It's all done in, in, as a group effort. And the other thing that I would say, another friction point, a third one, is within the profession, it seems, there seems to be a hierarchy, that the design architect is the real architect. But if you're a sustainability specialist, if you are a researcher in new materials, if you're the person who works with the client, uh, if you're someone who tries to understand um, the legal um, framework of a building and tries to influence uh, the planning or the, the politics. If you're any one of those roles, um, then somehow the profession says, well, you're not really an architect. The architect's the designer, you're the helper. You're and this is really bothersome to me because um, I, I think we need so many different roles in order to undertake responsible design, understanding, creation of our environments, our built environments, that I think we really have to get away from this idea that the real, the real professionals, the designer, and the rest are just sort of there. I think we have to say that anyone who has studied that long and has knowledge and contributes to the viability of a project, whether it's a city project, city planning, or um, um, landscape or a building or an interior 
all of those people should be recognized as professionals, valuable professionals, and talents and knowledge and skills that are fundamental to any project. So those friction points are, they're, they're hard to move in education. Um, <laughs> but as you say, um, we saw with COVID, the huge importance of our physical environment to our emotional, mental well-being, to the ability to undertake multiple tasks in one space, and, and how that this had um, a, a great impact on everyone, but an even more severe impact on people who were not able to have enough space or who are in the more fragile layers of our societies. So I think what we try to do at IE in the beginning is expand the role of architecture and design to tell students that through education, they can obtain the knowledge, the skills, the keys to open doors. But the door they choose to open, the professional door, there are so many and it's up to them. And those doors will change in the future. We, we know they're going to change. We're not in a stagnant or static world. So that's what we try, we try to do at IE. The accreditation procedures that schools have to go through are maybe another friction point. It's a corset about what you have to teach. Um, on the other hand, at our school, we try to teach in a different way. Um, we, try, we do group work. We don't prescribe projects that students must do, but there's always some component that's left undecided. There's always some decision that students have to make based on their research, their understanding, their, their, the path they choose for that project, and they have to be able to defend it rigorously. So I would say that's, that's probably a little bit different than some other schools, uh, especially here in Spain. Um, but you asked Susie about standardization. Um, mm. it's, it's interesting because I think architecture is a very old and very deep and rigorous profession. Um, I think we've moved away from formal, copying formally what we see to trying to understand processes. We have more faith in processes. And I think architectural education, it should never lose, it should never lose that aspect of very much hands-on, project-based learning, um, testing ideas, putting them up for criticism, trying to improve them. To me, that, that is part of the pedagogical method that we never should lose. On the other hand, I, I do think that um, we need to open up the accreditation to allow schools a little more freedom within a, within a rigorous framework um, that will allow them to deal with issues 
that they can illustrate locally or they can study locally and not prescribe the results, but prescribe the areas. Climate change, circular economy, understanding resources and resource flows. Um, we can't prescribe what schools should do in that because every place is different. But if we can um, encourage schools uh, to look at certain phenomena and contribute to the understand, not only understanding, but how to deal with those issues, then I, I think we'll be going in, a, in the right direction. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of those thoughts with us. I'm, I'm imagining that many of that will resonate with many people listening. So, um, yeah, thank you, Martha. I know we have limited time, but I just wanted to say really appreciate you um, joining us today. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. And, um, yeah, hopefully we'll get a chance to meet somewhere in the world sometime. Oh, Susie, I, I want to thank you because um, you, you know that I'm so passionate about the built environment and trying to connect the built, the natural, the digital. And I think having a, a podcast with you across the miles is one really great example of being able to connect. So thanks so much <laughs> and all the best. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Martha.